But ultimately, it's again taking that step back. Do you want to sit out this season or do you want to sit out the rest of your life? I'm Dr. Megan Cannon, sports psychologist with Mind of the Athlete, and you are listening to the Heads and Tails podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Today we're talking with Dr. Megan Cannon from Mind of the Athlete. She's a sports psychologist, and we're going to be focusing on the topic of uh, sports-related concussions and how sports psychology can play a role in athletes' recovery and also kind of managing this the, the concussion and their symptoms and getting back to play. Um, but before we get started, can you uh, talk about what sports you played growing up and also uh, what accolades you had? And don't be afraid to brag about yourself. Some of the other interviews that I've done today, people feel a little awkward about um, talking about themselves. But I'm here to promote you guys, so don't be afraid to <laughs> to let it all out. Okay. Shamelessly self-promote. Um, so growing up, I was heavily involved in swimming and softball. Those were my two primary sports. I started swimming when I was three on a team when I was five and then softball kind of same thing playing since very young. I also played basketball, went through the AAU circuits, um, and then danced. And so dance, okay. I started dance and training when I was three and then actually wound up in my going through college with it on a university's team and minored through it in college. Um, with swimming, I was on a four time district winning team in high school, competed in States. Um, and then just made the decision. My heart was more into dance. And so I chose to retire from swimming. I had conflicts going up with softball and dance practices at the same time. Okay. So I had to, you know, make a difficult choice, which a lot of athletes have to do because when you get into the upper levels, practice becomes more intense. And so you have to make choices. And then I guess more so in my adult life of athleticism, I've done a number of Spartan races and I've done the Spartan trifecta of the three legs right. of them. What are they called? They have a sprint, which is anywhere from like three to five miles okay. and then a super and a beast. And so one's, I think the one I did was a nine miler and then a 13 and a half miler out in Vegas. Right. And so, um, or Sacramento. And so you do them all within a year. And I want to so. get Joe DeSena on the uh, podcast. He's like the founder of Spartan race. Oh, that's so awesome. I'm like, I'm all about obstacles. I'm like, this guy makes a living off of obstacles so quite literally yeah, yeah. it's so so cool you stuff. you stayed active through those kind of races yep. and stuff like that most recently done a ragnar so that was the new one what's that it's a 200 mile road race that's um it's like a 24 hour race and so you're on teams of 12 people okay and you're in a van of six people and so a van will go out on course and all six of those runners run their heat and you cheer and do all that stuff right then the other van comes out so your team is running constantly for 24 hours and you can run at any given time. And so I think my legs were at 5 p.m., 3 a.m., and you know 10.30 a.m. or something. Right. And so it's... So how much did you end up actually running uh, my, individually? My legs were in total about 11 miles. It's a lot, yeah. Some people's legs are like six or eight miles, just one of them. Okay. So I'm more, I was more of the like quick, smaller legs just right. to like... Yeah. So it was fun. Good stuff. Um, dance is also interesting. Because I guess some people might not consider that a sport, but 
it takes a lot of athleticism to do all those moves. And also I have a stepsister who's always been very involved in dance. I know like it's a very rigorous and demanding type sport to be in. Um, so can you talk about maybe your favorite memory uh, from your dance career or, you know, what you think that kind of discipline or stuff taught you or that you can use today? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think for me now transitioning into what I'm doing here at Mind of the Athlete, being I was always very used to being on stage and being in front of people that I couldn't necessarily see in a performance right. way. And so now public speaking, speaking in front of people, I have no problem at all doing it. I think dance made me very confident in my ability to go and do that. But it's also very helpful for just the entire culture of dance is one of respect, time management. Um, you you right. get in and things are very structured. And so I think going forward in the outside of dance life of that, it's always being very respectful, being able to manage your time, having body awareness. I right. think it's it's actually yeah. really helpful in speed and agility for other things. I can rip through speed and agility ladders like a champ. Yeah. Just would, because just of knowing dance. how your body moves and mm -hmm. yeah, that's that's interesting. Um I know dancing there's also a lot of injuries too. So what injuries did you suffer from um over your career? It doesn't even have to be dance any just your athletic career in general. Yeah. Um I had I made it out alive, pretty lucky. No massive major surgeries. Um, I did have an ankle surgery in eighth grade, which took me out of dance for a while. It was a non-weight-bearing surgery I had to get. Right. Um, it was a genetic thing that I wasn't getting blood circulating to the bottom of my ankle, and so the bone started to die and chip off. Okay. So that was – Doesn't sound – Oh, it was lovely. Too uh, Yeah. Too and so with, like, the concept from basketball, like, short, quick movements and jumping and dance and stuff, so it just um, really messed my ankle up, and so – I had to get surgery, couldn't put any weight on it for six weeks, crutches, which it was fell at the end of basketball season, the beginning of softball season, and then right before like recital time for right. dance. And so it, that was a bummer. But outside of that, it's been a lot of more minor things that were not surgery related. related. Right. Yeah. Um, do you remember what you felt like during that time? It was terrible. So it was awful. How did you, how did you manage that? Maybe what do you know now? Uh, you know, now that you're a sports psychologist that you wish that you knew back then that right. could have helped you through that? Um, well, I didn't know just how important it was staying connected. Fortunately, with dance, I kind of just had to go because I would visually watch to be able to learn the dances. So I still stayed connected in that way. But with basketball and softball, I didn't, I didn't go to practice because okay. I couldn't do anything. And that lack of staying connected, because it's so ingrained in your identity, you're, that you're an athlete, that this is what you do. And then all of a sudden your team's going on and being successful without you. And so it makes you kind of wonder how much of an I've impact before, actually yeah. am I? Exactly. And, and then just with the decrease in physical activity, you have a lot of chemicals that aren't being released as frequently and readily in your brain. So baseline level of mood decreases. Right. And so um, I think that would have been just helpful to know because I just remember definitely being a lot more irritable and just sort of mopey um, and nothing else was different, you know, right. outside of the fact that I just, I wasn't anywhere near as active. And so my mood just sloped down. Yeah. And so I think um, being aware of that. And so you know, if I could go back, I would have proactively done some things to just help with both of those. Right. Interesting. So obviously at some point in time, your career ended with dance and all your other sports. So what was your transition to life after sports like? It was different. 
Um, you know, fortunately, I did dance in college. However, that everyday practice for a couple hours, like that wasn't there anymore. And so I had to learn, you know, that physical training for me, which then would be helpful for dance. Like I was more responsible for it. I was the one that I had to do it or right. I would fall out of shape. And so I fortunately got a job at the gym at the university that I was attending. And so I was able to get workouts made for me by the strength and conditioning coach. And so I would just, I started to do it more independently. Right. Um, I started lifting and stuff in high school in conjunction with the sport. So it was easier to do that. Um, and so from that point for me, working out and being active then just turned into my own kind of like therapy and my own just sort of tension release. Okay. And so it just then became even more of a, hob a hobby and interest as I transitioned into grad school and then also lost the dance piece of things. Right. And so I was just able to kind of continually build upon that. And then now with things like Spartans and Ragnars and stuff, they, they have these things now. So as adults, we're able to yeah, adult gym get a classes piece of it. Kind of, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So what ultimately sparked your interest in sports psychology? My interest initially, um, I, there's so much benefit and there's th our mood and our bodies are just so intertwined. And so my initial thought of, you know, I, psychology, it fit for me, right. but in trying to make it fit for me personally, I, I figured, you know, I want to somehow figure out a way that I can combine training and therapy. Okay. So maybe a personal trainer, but also therapy. However, when I kind of looked more into it, that dual relationship of being a trainer, like it, it just was kind of bumping into some some potentially like ethical issues. And so okay. I was like, ah, oh, okay, well, I don't really know, but I love like the preventative side of things and right. being able to have an impact um, in that way and working in an environment and in a culture that's that values that physical side of things more so than um, – maybe other populations. Right. And so I fortunately found myself at a school that had a sports psychology clinic. Where'd you go to school? I went to a school down in Florida called Nova Southeastern University okay. in Fort Lauderdale. And they actually had a sports psychology clinic. And I was linked up with that supervisor my first year down there just by total coincidence. Um, you couldn't do that particular rotation until you were a fourth year student. Oh, wow. And so I had tried some other things because I, I wasn't really sure what sports psychology was. So I tried my, you know, tried some other things and it just didn't really fit. I fortunately then got accepted into that rotation my fourth year and that was my first exposure to it. And so the clinic is, is really neat and pretty groundbreaking in the sense that two days of the week we had a concussion clinic. Oh, okay. And so we were baseline testing all of our athletes i mean i think before actually it, no i know before it was legally mandated to do so and so we were baselining all of our athletes and then any of the high school athletes in the area they would were if they were concussed throughout their season would come to our clinic we operated with the physicians in a tag team approach that we would do the cognitive testing the physicians would go over the physical stuff and then we would collaborate in doing the return to play protocol for those athletes and follow up with their care and so two days a week, it was that. And then two days a week, it was working as the therapists that were on retainer for the university's athletes. And so they could have performance related issues or typical, more, more typical clinical things that they were struggling with. Right. But either way, they came to us. Okay. And so it was through that experience that I 
figure out, oh my gosh, this, this is a good fit for me. It combines a bunch of my interests and it's, this is perfect. Awesome. And you, obviously you got a lot of experience with concussions from the get-go, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so speaking of that, how are athletes typically affected by concussions and how can a sports psychologist help? Well, the thing that's so difficult about concussions is that they're an injury of function, not of structure. Okay. And so you're like not a broken bone. Right. So your, your brain isn't broken. It's not like, and that's why so often some, well, more so before, um, because now we have in comparison, even three, four, five years ago, so much more information about concussions, what causes them, how we can identify them. But people would go to the hospital and, you know, you would get an MRI and there'd be nothing different. There'd be nothing there because you're looking at structure versus function. And so um, with every athlete, it was just sort of learning for them, like where those deficits were. And so with every athlete, depending on if it's their first, second, third concussion, how severe the concussion was, every athlete was impacted differently. And so having that good baseline, we were then able to see the severity because how, how, how severe that concussion was at that at, for that athlete would then impact their pathway for a return to full play. Right. So a lot of athletes don't have the baseline. I mean, it's becoming mm-hmm. more and more popular today. Right. But like in youth leagues, like it's probably not required in right. a lot of places. So how can is it is a is getting these tests post-concussion still valuable in any way? Yeah, it definitely can be valuable. It's obviously not as – you're going to just be more conservative. Okay. And so if you have a baseline and a valid baseline that you can compare it to, you can then see how many areas or how much there is a discrepancy and how much that functioning is lower. But if you don't have a baseline, there's still an entire normative group that this test was standardized on right. that you can then compare that individual's baseline or I'm sorry, that individual's post-concussion test okay. just to see where they're falling for the norm of their gender, their age, age group, you know, and just to see um, with somebody that you w- that you don't have a baseline for that particular athlete, you're going to just be more conservative in your interpretation and, and reading of it versus if you had a baseline and so you could tell, okay, this is exactly where we're at. Right. So in that way, shape or form, you know, you are a little bit more conservative. However, even without a baseline, it gives you a lot of really good information. Interesting. Now you said before you, you described it as a valid. Mm-hmm. Um, so what makes a, a baseline invalid or valid? An athlete trying. So how do you get that? How do you get we an athlete tell. to try? There's, there are some, so some, some athletes, I mean, granted, I am sure there are athletes out there that they're really, they're good at kind of faking it and then that's great. However, some, there would be some athletes that totally sandbagged it and you could tell because their, their baseline functioning that we, we'd read out and it's like, you're, you wouldn't be in college right. if this is, so no, you sandbag that. You you definitely didn't try because what some athletes will do is they'll think, all right, if I don't try really hard, then when I come back, when I have a concussion and I'm potentially like my cognitive functioning is lower, yeah. well, then my ba- it'll it'll match yeah, up and good. I'll be fine. Yeah, and then they'll like, let yeah. me go. Then it's like, well, actually, no, because we have this whole other normative group. And now because we don't have an accurate baseline for you, because we can tell that this is the situation. Right you now fall in that group we have to be more conservative with versus had you just taken it for real the first time, we could then more accurately read how much 
your functioning is impacted right now. Right. But now we just have to be more conservative and compare it to the normative group instead of your own functioning. All right. So have you talked to athletes who sandbagged it and be like, why did you do that? Or do you understand like Mm -hmm. the consequences of concussion and stuff like that? Yep. We would talk to them about it. And so the way, and so I think a lot of it is, it's a good and a bad thing um, with the way that it's so good that we're now getting all the athletes to do it. And it's, it's kind of a normative practice at this point, depending on what state you are and at right. what level. However, the method of administration, there's a lot of variety. And so sometimes they're throwing upwards of a hundred athletes in a room sitting in front of a computer a and say, distracting, there you yeah. go, take it. Well, okay. Versus what we would do is each team would come in individually Myself or the other. They come here to the facility of mine. Oh, this was athlete? down in, um, oh, okay. in Florida at the concussion gotcha, clinic. Gotcha. So each team, we would meet with them individually, uh, like before the days of their pre-participation physicals. Like they were just kind of all there. We would meet with the teams individually. So that would give them an opportunity to meet us. We would give them, you know, a 10, 15 minute presentation on, hey, this is a concussion. You actually don't even have to hit your head to get one. You don't have to lose consciousness. This is why this right. is so important. And we would give a little bit of information of how it can really be detrimental to their performance and their mood and things going forward, but also why it's really beneficial for them to do this test well. And then they would do it. Okay. Versus um, having, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's a, a function of funding. It's a function of, you know, logistics of sometimes, you know, we only have one or two athletic trainers who they now um, in some cases will be the ones to administer the test right. to, you know, however many athletes. And so you just don't have a great ratio. And so it, it, it just depends. And so um, for our athletes, we, at the university that we worked with, they sandbagged their baselines significantly less in comparison to some of the other athletes that we would get not from the university coming in. Because the education was there. It helped. Yeah. Um, I think it definitely helped. Was that, you know, the only reason? Who knows? Um, but so I think the method of administration is really important when doing that. Just so if you're asking a high school or a college athlete to do something, they're already really busy. They have a lot of things they need to do. If you explain it to them and how it can be beneficial to them, right. um, you know, then they're obviously going to be more likely to actually dedicate the time to it and do it. Most of them. Not right. All, okay. Awesome. So... Let's start getting into the post-concussion stuff or syndrome stuff. So a lot of times this syndrome, you know, with all the headaches, nausea, sensitivity to light, um, mm -hmm. maybe you can explain some of the other symptoms that you see with athletes coming in. But this can be very, like, crippling for athletes and mm -hmm. can take them out of school and stuff. So I just kind of wanted to talk through, you know, some of the things that I've come across with athletes that I've interviewed who have post-concussion syndrome and just see how a sports psychologist like yourself could help these athletes. So just first off, like addressing thoughts of suicide, that's actually, I mean, it's more common than I thought it would be, but mm -hmm. I think it's mostly comes from the fact that they feel like it's never going to go away. Like their headaches right. are never going to go away. Their anxiety never feels like it's never going to go away. So how do you talk to athletes who, you know, show signs or say that they have thoughts of suicide? With the thoughts of suicide, it's then, you know, a lot of cognitive reframing, a lot of, you know, dealing with that crisis management in that point in time, getting and developing plans, you know, talking with their parents if they're of age that, you know, and, and developing and working as a unit. Um, ultimately, it is a very discouraging injury. It's such a it's such a hard injury because you can't see it. Exactly. And yeah. so it's 
you get then really down on yourself when you're starting to get these symptoms back and it's you're it's just this process that seems like it's going to go on forever and so it's then at that point in time you know talking with that athlete about the thoughts that they're having and then you know even going over you wouldn't be that upset if athletics weren't so much a part of our identity and so it's right. just working with that athlete of you know, like sports is such an important part of life, but what are some other things to help them start spreading out like their value and their worth and noticing and, and learning parts about themselves that it's not, I'm not only a football player. And right. if I'm not a football player, I'm also all these other things. And so it relieves a little bit of the pressure. Right. Um, but even before that, with the concussion management, things like that, it's shutting things down and actually really doing the recommendations like 100% concussions if you push through a day or two you're extending like a week onto your rehab right and coming back and so even taking kids out of school um extensions on assignments the similar thing that you would do for physical activity you also need to do for academically yeah yep and that includes listening to music watching tv playing video games I mean, it's really hard to shut down your brain because even when you're resting and relaxing, your brain's working. working. Yeah. And so it's so discouraging. And we would get so many looks from athletes of like, wait a minute, you mean you want me to pretty much sit in a quiet room with not a lot of lights on until I feel better? It's like, kind of. Yeah, because it doesn't matter what you're doing, but your brain is is constantly working. And so, um, you know, if you unfortunately like can't get academic accommodations and still have to push through school. You know, it's just discouraging because then your symptoms are just going to last longer right. and then make this, this process perpetual. Have you go. dealt with a situation like that where an athlete can't get academic accommodations? Fortunately at the university that I was at, um, there was a really good cooperative environment and the teachers more often than not understood. We were working with the athletic or I'm sorry, the academic affairs office. And so they would get, um, their paperwork signed and we would have them attend some classes eventually, you know, and, and get different accommodations of assignments and maybe be able to use notes for tests just to help them out. So f at that particular university, it was at that time, it was okay. Um, some teachers, you know, spend it maybe at the high school level. I, I think academic accommodations are more difficult to get. Um, I don't think as many universities are necessarily having their athletes shut it down in that area. Right. Um, and so I think that probably is just very dependent on the school, the teacher, and what that particular school or high school's concussion protocol is. Okay. Um, what would you say to a school district uh, superintendent who didn't have, you know, or didn't allow, you know, uh, academic accommodations for – a, a student athlete with uh, mm -hmm. suffering from a concussion? I think it would just be a lot of psychoeducation. We still don't understand a ton about this injury. And like I said, three years ago to now, we view concussions totally different. Five years ago now, it's night and day. And so a lot of people don't know that academic accommodations are actually necessary and very beneficial. They don't know the cognitive impact of like pushing through that and the long-term impact it may have on that, that person and right. just extending their rehab time and their progression back into athletic and academic, like full 100% functioning. And so I think at that point it would really just be a matter of educating them of, Hey, this is actually a thing. This person's not trying to just get out of a test. Um, 
there, there's empirical data and research that's supporting this idea right. of really shutting it down in all areas, socially, academically, and athletically until that person for a period of, you know, seven to 10 days and then reevaluating going in from there. All right. Um, does exercise play any role in the recovery coming back? Cause I know not, you know, like not stimulating your brain as yeah. being a way to heal, but I, I work in a, a sports health facility as mm -hmm. well. And we, or the athletic trainers in the building see a lot of athletes that come in with concussions and they do, you know, certain protocols with heart rate and stuff like that. And it, it tends to get the, the athlete better in, mm -hmm. in some way. Um, so what, where does exercise come in for an athlete who's uh, trying to get back to, to sport and who's suffering from PCS? Right. Um, and so ultimately the goal is symptom free for 24 hours before you do anything. And then at that point in time, you start progressing slowly back. And so okay. you can start walking. And then if you feel fine after that, then the next day you start running. Okay. And then if you feel fine, so you can progress. Um, the thing that's very discouraging is that say you're starting to run and then all of a sudden you get a headache again. Theoretically, you need to start back at zero. Oh, really? And 24 hours symptom free and start through the Try progression again, yeah. again because it's your body is still not healed. And that's if your headaches were one of the symptoms or dizziness, it's your body, it's your brain saying like, it's, we're not done yet. Yep. And so you want to get back symptom free and progress through. Now there are some athletes that may get to a point in their progression and maybe they get a mild headache, but it's not as intense as what it was. And then they just feel a little bit better after their workout. They just had maybe a, a small headache. That's not necessarily like a, okay, we got to go back to square one situation right. because there is a lot of benefit to exercise. There are endorphins, serotonin, brain derived neurotropic factors. Like there are things released in our brain that help our mood naturally. And so having those things and being able to progress back into doing that is obviously going to be very, very helpful for the mood of the athletes. Right. You just want to make sure that you're doing it slow enough so that it's not exacerbating any symptoms. Okay. Awesome. So like we just said, we're trying to minimize stimulation where it's like minimal TV and phone and all that stuff. It's probably pretty quickly the athlete will start feeling isolated from the world. So how do you kind of address that issue that comes about with this necessary part of recovery mm -hmm. of what we would always well initially especially like if you get a concussion I mean a lot of the athletes reported being very tired and they would really just sleep for most of those days right. um but then once they started getting bored and getting like their parents started getting annoyed we would always kind of jokingly say this is really good for your progress and prognosis because you're feeling better. Right. So that's great. And so the first couple of days that athletes probably just knocked out and conked out anyway. And so they're not wanting to do they're anything, not really yeah. wanting to do much. And so it's that those prolonged periods of not being connected, that's when you can really start feeling isolated. And so if it's a week, a couple of days of just like, all right, sleep, relax. You can always have friends calling and texting or communicating with the parents. And so then you know, if it's a high school or a student athlete or younger kid athlete, which then they can, you know, get support through that way or cards or, you know, that kind of stuff that right. that athlete's not having to read their phone or, or mentally stimulate themselves in some way, shape or form. But you can still get that support in that way. But then once you're starting to get a little bit better, um, you can start using your phone again, you know, but it's maybe just not as much. It's, you know, still that progression back into that brain activity because it's still working on healing itself. Okay. And so... Um, you know, you can still check in with friends and, you know, have 
calm, relaxing hangouts, you know, more so than right. maybe going out Not to movies music or, or yeah. right, just something a little bit more chill and relaxed. All right. Awesome. Now, some athletes after going through all this, you know, with the serious symptoms, they might've been out for a long time. They might have some anxiety returning back to their sport because they don't want the same thing to happen again or whatever they might be worried about. So how do you address, um, from a sports psychology perspective, um, this anxiety in returning to their sport? Oh, that's a hard one because whatever, I mean, whenever we get an injury, our, our brains are very, very well adapted organs. If it does something and you get hurt, your brain and its fear centers right. are going to not want you to do that again. And those fear centers, it's called the amygdala. There are these little almond-shaped things um, on either side. We're like 12, 13, 14 years old when they develop. And so they're not going to want you to go head-to-head and board drills again. Right. They're not going to want you to do that. And so if that's an a-, a problem that an athlete's having, it's you know, sometimes it's something to be mindful of because if you're tensing up and getting nervous before you're going to play, there's also some research that suggests when you're like really nervous like that, it can impact your alertness and kind of like awareness. And so you're going into something nervous and tense and then also like your awareness and ability to focus is negatively impacted, which is then just going to increase your potential for injury, whether it's the same injury or something else. Exactly. And so it's starting to learn to override those fear centers. And you can do that, you know, throughout your progression back, just regaining your confidence and like, I ran today, I did this today and, and focusing, not comparing yourself to the pre-injury athlete, but the, okay, this is where I'm starting post-injury. This is where I'm at a week okay. into my training, two weeks into my training and sort of looking back at your progression back and helping yourself gain some confidence in that way. This is one of those areas that working with the sports psychologist, um, not to be like self-promoting, but it actually is one of those things we see a lot of athletes in here, whether they're like transitioning back from injury or they do a certain sport like gymnastics or diving where all of a sudden they just start fear factor. Yeah, They get fearful of those things. And so, um, that's that may be a situation where it is beneficial for an athlete to just go and work on learning some, you know, visualization, some relaxation tools and strategies that they can then apply when they're doing that. Um, because it's it's a really it's a very relative and a very real fear. Um, your body doesn't want to go through that again. Right. And so it's just learning to retrain and override those fear centers in your brain. Awesome. Uh, so if you're out of school for an extended period of time, the schoolwork might be piling up. How do Mm -hmm. you talk to athletes about maybe the stress they might be feeling about missing tests or missing exams? Because it's obviously important to take a break because your brain needs it. And by going back and taking a test, not only are you probably going to do poorly on that test, but you're also going to set yourself back Mm -hmm. in terms of your recovery. So how do you talk to athletes to kind of like tell them to pump the brakes there? It's, Exactly what you just said. It's helping them to take a step back from right now. So often as people, whether we're athletes, we're young, we're old, doesn't matter. We get so tunnel visioned into the next 10 hours of life. You know, um, what's going on with us this day, this year, this moment that we have a hard time taking a step back, which helps us put things into perspective. So yes, this upcoming test may be really, really stressful or this assignment or something. But if you take a step back, it's just one test. Right. It's just one class. It's just one quarter or one semester of your time in your entire academic career. And so it's helping that athlete to take a step back 
And yes, this is a very important assignment, but you will get it done. You're still going to graduate high school. You're still going to graduate college. You're still going to pass that class. You just need to take a step back, put it into perspective, and just help them to do that because it's, it's, it's a very real stressor, especially for the athlete that is very into their academics, which a lot of them are. Right. Um, then my next question is about the fear of missing out. Like if you're a high school athlete or any person really, you know, and you're laid up in your room, you can't do anything, but, you know, to the outside person, you know, you probably look fine, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure the parties are still going to go on, you know, your team's still going to go on and play without you. So how do you get a lot of athletes who kind of talk about the fear of missing out on Mm -hmm. everything that's going on? Yeah. You miss out on a lot of things, um, especially initially, when if, with a concussion injury, especially because it really is kind of shutting things down. Um, but just because you're not like full back into full play, you can still progress back into your social life as well. And so maybe you're not showing up at all the practices, but you can go to the games. Okay. Or maybe you're, you know, not going to the parties, but maybe if a friend has people over and it's more of just like a hang, we're going to watch a movie and chill. Like you can pick and choose your social activities and the things that you participate in. And so, right. With, um, you know, some athletes, it's it's making that choice of, okay, like I, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm going to these games and I'm going to watch them. And so I'll choose to do that over going to practice all week this week and sitting in the sun exactly, just right. to watch. And so, you know, it's it's that that point in life where athletes can then make, make those choices and have the ability to choose which, you know, the things that they want to do. And the it stinks missing out, but ultimately – missing out on that one party or that one game is going to enable you to a month from now go, go to, to all the parties yeah, exactly, instead yeah. of just continuing Gotta to be patient with it. Yeah. Patience. All Patience right. is so it's, hard. Yeah, it is very hard. Uh, what about people not believing in your symptoms? Like you, that you, you still have these symptoms, you know, months out from your initial injury. Mm-hmm. What do you say to athletes who, who come to you saying that, Oh, they just don't believe me or, you know, stuff along those lines. That's so frustrating when that happens, you know, I mean, and I think, I think slowly but surely that's going a little bit away just because our knowledge overall as a culture, like we were understanding concussions more and understanding, okay, this person's probably not faking it. It's obviously not taken that whole stigma away from it of like you're faking this injury. Um, But again, it's going back and talking with that athlete individually of that's, you know, processing their feelings towards their teammates, treating them that way. Is there anything that that athlete feels that they can do to help their teammates understand? Um, But ultimately, it's, again, taking that step back. Do you want to sit out this season or do you want to sit out the rest of your life? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I did. um, (laughs) Have you ever watched the Preston Prevlidis? So there's a big reason why I started this podcast and Preston Prevlidis is a big reason why. Okay. And... Because in that it's a East for those of you who haven't seen the E60 um, documentary about Preston, Preston had the same exact injury that I had. So we both played with a concussion, and we both suffered from second impact syndrome. However, he wasn't as lucky as I was in terms of the cognitive deficits that he suffered because of the injury. And at one point during his interview, he was telling. Um, Tom Fari is the guy who was doing the interview from ESPN. He told him that he wanted to learn how to speak well enough again uh, to tell other athletes not to make the same mistake that we made. And when I saw that, I literally just started crying because 
here I am. I was like two years out from my second impact syndrome injury. And I was feeling bad for myself that I couldn't play football. And I was constantly like down on myself. And I was like, here I am like here feeling bad for myself when this kid suffered the same exact injury that I did, except I can do everything that he wants to do, you know, and it, he wishes that he could throw a football. He wishes that he could just talk. And I can do all those things, so I want to be the voice for athletes like Preston and for athletes who weren't as lucky as, as I was. So that's kind of where I started this podcast, to be an outlet for people who might be feeling down by having post-concussion syndrome or any kind of other injury, and also to hear from health experts like you guys um, over at Mind of the Athlete to – you know, kind of help them deal with these feelings that they might be having. So I'm very aware of the, the press and plevridi story. Speaking of uncontrollable emotions, <laughs> sometimes... Know, it makes me cry every time I watch it. Yeah, me too. Uh, sometimes that's a part of post-concussion syndrome as well. Is there any way that you, that, uh, you guys as sports psychologists can work with athletes to help them kind of tame that? Or is it because it's an injury to a specific part of your brain, is it something that you really can't control? With any of that, like with emotions, ultimately, culturally, we we don't take the time to learn why we're feeling certain ways and what's causing us to do that. And so when that's happening, it's just a really good way to walk through with athletes. Like, okay, you're this is the emotion that you're experiencing right now. Right. Why? Let's figure it out. Let's talk about it. And and with that particular athlete, with everybody, there's going to be things and strategies and certain little tools and tricks that for that person will help them feel better. And so even if it's turning on Netflix and watching an episode of The Office. Right. When Love they're The f- Office. Right? Yeah. Um, then, you know what? For that athlete, that's what works for them. All right. And so it's, you know, we all emotionally, we... we we have our physical side and our emotional side. And so it's learning a little bit more about that, learning ways to manage it for that person individually. And if you do start getting like, you know, more, a lot of emotions and things like that, learn about it. Why is that happening? Are there certain situations that trigger that to occur? Are there certain things that you can do that help you to come back from it or at least make your mood a little bit better. And so with those things, it's again, another opportunity or a place where working with a sports psychologist or a counselor may be helpful in helping those athletes navigate how they individually, if and when those things occur, how they can help themselves move past that. Awesome. Um, I was going to say, so how do you communicate with parents and coaches about an athlete's concussion? in terms of what they say to the athlete and in, in the management of it and, and ultimately returning to the sport. So you're oh laughing. My so. I'm laughing because in our concussion clinic there, I kid you not, we had a kid one time who he was concussed. I mean, his symptoms were pretty decently severe. He was a week out from injury. They were coming back for their follow-up um, just because, you know, out for the week come back in a week. We'll see where things are at at that point in time. His symptoms were continuing at a, you know, a severe enough level that, you know, they'd gotten better, but it was like, all right, dude, you're out for another week. His parents were fighting with us because a recruiter was coming to the game that weekend. Right. And we were like, no, this kid can get incredibly hurt. They could potentially get a brain injury they could potentially die on the field we understand that it's really important that coach so-and-so from wherever is coming right 
but do you want to put your child? But he'll never play there if you play if you play this week, right? Yeah. He'll never play there or he'll maybe never play again. And exactly. so that was always a very hard not always. It sometimes could be a very hard battle. Some parents are it 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 depends. You know, some parents are very receptive. They're very, you know, the sport isn't necessary. Right. It's just one of the things that they're kind of Yeah, into. this is directed towards the parent who <laughs> wants to get their kid back in the game knowing that they have a concussion, yeah. Right. Um, so for those parents, you know, it's really just trying to continue to educate them of this is like medically what's necessary for your son or daughter. Um, at that point in time, for whatever reason, it was very helpful to get the physicians in. Okay. Um. Maybe, you they, know, we're, listen to we're, we're just more in American culture, more comfortable with the MDs of the world. So that's fine. If that's what it took, we would all meet in the room with the parents and explain right. to them from both a cognitive and a physical perspective, these are the reasons why your kid cannot play this weekend. And if you choose to allow them to play for whatever reason, this is the litany of, of things, things that, could, that could go wrong. And I mean, you as a parent or ultimately want the best interest of your child in mind, right. yeah, you'd love to see that scholarship, but is it worth it? Exactly. And so we at points in times found that that was helpful, was getting the the physicians in as well. All right. Pulling out all the big guns. Yeah, whatever you know? it takes, I guess. <laughs> okay, so how can a sports psychologist help athletes transition back to a normal schedule and back onto the field in terms of like goal setting or school accommodations? And what communication do you have with athletic trainers? Because they're the ones who are looking after the athletes, you know, on the field. So, right. And an athletic trainer saved my life. So, I have a lot of respect for. They're always their on profession. the front line. Yeah. The athletic trainers of the world are the unsung heroes. It's true. I'll tell you what, they are the front line for the injuries, for the emotional stuff. They they are the counselors of the athletic departments. I feel you know, in so so many situations. For sure. Um. So in that one, coming from the psychologist perspective, we have to kind of be careful if we have. You know, it's all about the release of information. And so if it's a right, high school, laws, yeah. yep. And so if we have a release of information that we're able to talk to the trainers or, for instance, down at Nova in that concussion clinic, we all were within the same clinic so we could communicate. Okay. That was the benefit of that multiple, multidisciplinary approach right. was that we were constantly checking in with how that player was doing at practicing and once they were cleared, how they were doing, how they were progressing. So we, we were able to get that information very, very quickly. If you're not in a facility that's all connected like that where the communication right. can't be that way. Like most like ninety nine percent of everything. Youth, yeah, um, youth sports. Then you know it's it's a matter of the parents being receptive and open or if that athlete's above the age of eighteen, being receptive to having a release of information for the psychologist and the trainer for those pieces of information only. You know, it's not like we're gonna be talking about other things, but it just related to the concussion stuff. And you can make releases of information to be very specific like that. Right. And so um, if that's something that the athlete is interested in doing, that's something from our end that then we can collaborate and then that line of communication is open between us and the trainers. Okay. And so then we're able to get that and information. And it could probably take a little bit of uh, the train the athletic trainer's load off their plate, I guess, like this one less thing that they have to try to help the athlete with. I know, they're so It's busy. not really their area of expertise, but... But it's helpful. It's yeah. so helpful. Awesome. So we kind of talked about this, about the effectiveness of baseline cognitive measurements like the impact test. You said they are pretty effective even because it, it can kind of test out of uh, people trying to bomb the test on purpose. Mm -hmm. Are there any other tests that 
um, that are out there for athletes to the do a baseline? The is the main one it's right the, now. The yeah, that's like the gold standard. That is the gold standard. It has been around for quite some time. Okay, awesome. So it's all right. It's, it's proven. It's the one. Okay. Uh, do you think that brain damage from head trauma is a con- contributing factor to athletes struggling post con- like post career? Or do you think that you think like from a biological standpoint, like CTE and stuff like that, mm-hmm. or do you think that it's the identity lost that has to do with it? it? Both. I mean, for some athletes, and they don't really necessarily understand why, but like some athletes, you can play football for your entire life, and that's why I know. ask because yeah. it's like there's some athletes who play just as long as other athletes who mm-hmm. you know really struggle cognitively later in their lives and after their careers. But then you have guys who play the same position and you don't hear anything about them. Mm -hmm. So in my head, I'm not saying I'm not discrediting or discounting what CTE does or if it's real, but I, my, my hypothesis is that a lot of the time it's this loss in identity that makes these athletes, you know, go crazy, I guess. Yeah. Um, so with that, there's, you know, there's certain genetic markers or things that they're finding um, postmortem that their brains are definitely different, people with CTE versus not. And so there's tau proteins that will show up initially in your frontal lobe and then starting to take over. So there's diff- four different stages of it. Stage one with that irritability um, and then that moves into, you know, the mood, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's just like anything else. You could have a family history of diabetes and and never get it. Right. You could have a family history of depression and never find yourself in a position where you're depressed. You could have no family history of depression and find yourself with depression or have no family history of diabetes and find like so it's genetics are always a component to it. There's there's always going to be things, there's always going to be exceptions to the rules. And so for some athletes, and, I'm, and I know they're doing a ton of research now to figure out what is that differentiating factor? Is there a genetic marker? Is there is there something going on that's making certain people more or less susceptible to that versus people that play the same exact position for the same amount of time and they're fine? Right. Um, and so maybe someday they'll figure out the answer. But as of right now, we don't really yeah, don't know. know. And so um, – it depends on the athlete, and I hate copping out and saying that, but it definitely does. And for some people, it is that loss of identity that that really negatively impacts them going forward. And for other ones, there there is some other things biologically going on that then impacts their trajectory after their careers are over. All right, awesome. In some of the other interviews, depending on when this one's posted, we talk about the identity and how to kind of help the transition to life after sports so i won't exhaust that topic in in this episode um okay so i'm about to wrap it up so this is a question that i got from another podcast i listened to but i just thought it's an awesome question lewis house school of greatness if you like this this like this podcast you might like his as well um if you had to tattoo one word or phrase backwards on your forehead so you had to look at it in the mirror every day what would it be focus and why is that very hard to do okay i i ever since i was younger um my because focus megan you have to focus just to focus because i always wanted to be on to the next thing or doing something else or not really interested in 
sitting down to doing school and wanting to go do something else. But okay. ultimately, it's challenging yourself to sit there and focus and complete something and get it done, um, regardless of if it's on a field, in a pool, in a classroom, in an office. Whatever you're doing, you do need to have that focus and you have to have that drive to just get it done. Okay. And so I think sometimes focusing, even if it's just focusing on yourself for five minutes to figure out what's going on internally, I feel like the word focus in, in all different facets of life can be very, very helpful and impactful. Awesome. What do you do to try to improve your focus? I work out. <laughs> okay, that helps. All right. Yeah, no, I... um if there's a, a lot of things going on you just get like a good workout in or a good run, it just, I, I saw nice on your breath. Instagram that you went to a CrossFit gym recently Yeah. and you did a, a set, not that I'm stalking, but I just happened to, to take a look. Happened to see it. Yeah. I guess I was stalking. So anyway, <laughs> uh, you gave a presentation about overcoming injuries. Mm -hmm. Um, do you give us like three points that you kind of, told to, to these athletes because sure. I'm a, a CrossFitter myself who also is injured and I'm about six months post-operation on my knee so <sighs> my gosh you have to come to our Wad and Learns all right yeah that sounds and awesome once a month you have to come um so let's see three pointers well one you already know is like your mood can be impacted if you're not exercising yep. and so being mindful being aware that that can happen um, and then you already talked about staying connected. So we'll wrap that, that into one thing. Okay. The second thing I think is adjusting your goals. Um, so pre-injury versus post-injury. CrossFit gonna... games and, uh, just being able to squat again. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so that's comparing self to pre-injury is going to be really not helpful for confidence and right. not helpful for getting back. And well, I used to be able to do this. I used to be able to do that. Well, that's great you know, have this right. surgery or whatever. And so if you started off at, let's say 50% or 40% from original capacity, that's where the goals are now. Right. And so then after a month, where are you at? Okay. What are the specific skills that you've been working on getting back? Yeah, it's great. You used to have them, yeah. but it's just adjusting those Similar goals. Similar to the concussion. Yeah. Yep. And um, what would be the last, the last thing? Finding other outlets. Um, that's a theme throughout this entire day. Of isn't it crazy? Yeah. We have yeah. things. And so when, you know, for a lot of people working out as an outlet, it's a good stress reliever. You're also, especially with CrossFit, it's a very social environment. It's, you know, you're, you're around people all the time and then all of a sudden not having that. Right. And so for some people, it's really easy to turn to drugs or alcohol or like less healthy coping strategies and mechanisms. And so it's finding what works for you that can help you, whether it's music or whether it's art or whether it's talking with people or doing something physical that is within the realm that you're physically able to do post-injury. Right. Whatever that outlet can be, we can get rid of certain things in life, but one thing we cannot get rid of is stress and the stressors that are going to pop up in our everyday. And so you need to figure out new outlets to right help. That. Awesome. Last question. What's your personal definition of perseverance? Not like Webster's Dictionary. You I could, know. I'm trying to think. You could put in any kind of term you want, whether it's like a, a dance metaphor or <laughs> a psychology metaphor. Oh, my goodness. This, this is going to be so ridiculous. I don't care. Just keep swimming. I'm going to go finding Nemo on you. Okay. Just keep it like literally just keeping going. Even if you that one day make a centimeter of a gain towards right. what you're trying to accomplish and where you're eventually going, 
There's going to be things constantly that are going to get into your way that are going to potentially negatively impact your trajectory or your course. But it's that ability that to just keep swimming, to keep moving forward, even if it's a little bit, just to continually do it. I think for me, even that's, if it's a doggy paddle, even if it's doggy paddle and you forget where you're going, you just need to keep going. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, you did a, a great job and I appreciate you sharing your knowledge.